Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. And for the past several years, I've recorded comments and reflections on the events of the year as the year comes to a close and how we can put events, stories in the news into some historical context. And I'm going to try to do that again now. And I may not get into any particular story in great depth, but I will try to make some comments from the historical perspective. I may mention a bit more about UFOs following up on a story I already gave a lecture on a couple of months ago. And I might also bring up some themes and topics that I haven't talked about this year, but that are connected to previous events I've talked about in past years, like the strikes that happened in Hollywood and Detroit. But I'll start now by addressing a subject that I haven't brought up, that is new, and that maybe is the elephant in the room, right? The thing everyone has been hearing and talking about for the last few months. But it is such a complicated and sensitive and emotional subject. Rather than dive into it in the normal way, by starting with the disaster that's unfolding right now as we speak, I'm going to go about it in my customary way, which is to start with a story. So once again, I will begin by just telling the story, and then I'll talk about where the story came from, how I came to encounter it, and what meanings we might take from it. So this story takes place in very, very remote ancient times, when, as the saying goes, Jerusalem was just a plowed field. And the story involves two brothers, who were both farmers, who shared a tract of land that they cultivated on the side of a mountain. One of the brothers lived near the top of the mountain. He was unmarried and lived alone. The other brother lived by the base of the mountain, where he had a wife and children and a large household. And these two brothers together cultivated a common plot of land that the two of them had inherited from their mother. And their custom was that they would cultivate the grain, and then, when harvest time came, each one would go into the field and simply harvest and collect as much as he could before the grain started to fall to the ground or go bad. And they would gather the grain into sheaves and put them away in their respective granaries, one at the top of the mountain and the other at the bottom. Now it happened that one year there was an especially abundant harvest, and the brother at the top of the mountain looked at his overfull granary and observed that it wasn't fair that he should enjoy so much of this year's harvest when he only had to provide for himself, whereas his brother had a large family and household to feed. And he thought that he ought to take some of his excess sheaves of grain and offer them to his brother. But he knew that, of course, his brother would never accept this. So he hatched a scheme to go to his granary secretly late at night, take some of his grain, load it on a cart, and bring it down the hillside and surreptitiously put it into his brother's storehouse. Now it happened that on the same night, the other brother observed to himself and commented to his wife that it didn't seem right 
that they should enjoy such a large portion of the grain harvest, which they had been able to gather very efficiently with their children and household servants. And as he told his wife, my brother, unlike me, lives alone. He has no one to go out and help him with the labor, and he has no one to stay home and perform the household chores and receive him and feed him when he goes home. So this brother, with his wife's reluctant acquiescence, came up with his own scheme to load some sheaves of his grain onto his cart and quietly, late at night, bring them up the hill and deposit them in the other brother's storehouse. So on this particular night, both of these brothers, quietly and in the cover of darkness, passed by one another, depositing a cartload of grain in the other one's granary. And when the two of them woke in the morning, they looked into their storehouses and found that the amount of grain seems to have remained about the same. And they thought this was odd, maybe just a trick of their perception. Maybe they had miscounted. So the following night, both brothers do the same thing again. And once more, they load sheaves of grain into their carts and pass by one another on the way to surreptitiously unloading them in the other brother's granary. And for a second time, each one gets up in the morning and finds that their piles of grain have remained about the same. At this point, they begin to suspect that perhaps some strange miracle or witchcraft is being worked on them. And so once more, a third night, they go out and try to surreptitiously move some of their own grain into their brother's storehouse. Now it happens this third night, the sky was more clear than it had been the previous two nights, and the moon came out. So on this third night, each brother set out, one up the hillside and the other down the hillside. But with just enough moonlight lighting their way, they were able to see one another approaching. And once they came close enough together to make out one another's cartloads of grain, they of course realized what had been happening for the past two nights, and they laughed and embraced. Now the story of what had transpired between these two brothers naturally got around quickly, and after not very long it entered into the local folklore, to the point that people would point out this particular hill and recount what had happened there. It soon became a kind of local sacred site. When the time came to build the first temple to God, this hill was chosen as the site. And that's why Solomon's temple stood upon this particular mountain. I first heard this particular story, or a version of it, when the junior rabbi of a synagogue that I attended for several years in New York City told it from the Bima. And when she told the story, she said that it came originally from a madrash, meaning one of the books of collected Jewish stories and commentaries relating to the scriptures. And it seems that this notion is very common. The story has circulated around and been told and retold many times, especially in synagogues, where it is commonly understood and commonly repeated that this story came from a medieval Jewish madrash. 
Now, I was naturally very intrigued by the story when I heard it for a number of reasons. The composition, the symmetry, the sense of irony, and also the fact that, very intriguingly, it attributes the sighting of Solomon's temple to human choice, not simply to divine command, as it is described in the Hebrew Bible. So I wanted to see if I could find the original version of this story. And after going home, I started searching. And after not very long, I was able to find that I was not the first person to seek out the origins or earliest attestation of this story. And previous researchers had found that it doesn't come from a madrash at all. It doesn't appear, in fact, in any traditional or authoritative work of Jewish commentary. Rather, researchers have found that the earliest known record of this story comes from a book published in Paris in 1835. It's called Voyage en Orient, and it's by Alphonse de Lamartine, a French Republican politician and poet. And the book is a travel account describing Lamartine's travels in the Near East, particularly Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, in 1832-33. Lamartine recounts this particular story in his book under the date October 29, 1832, which is during the time when he was visiting Jerusalem, and he attributes this particular story to a Palestinian Arab tradition. And after recounting the story in his own words, he observes, quote, What a charming tradition! How it breathes the simple goodness of patriarchal manners! How ancient and natural is the inspiration which falls on men to consecrate to God a place in which virtue has germinated on the earth! I have heard amongst the Arabs hundreds of legends of this nature. The atmosphere of the Bible is breathed in all parts of the East, end quote. So, as it turns out, this particular story, which has circulated around the contemporary Jewish world, often being retold from the Bima, is misattributed. It does not come from a Jewish source, but from an Arab source, if we believe Alphonse de Lamartine, who is our earliest attestation. Naturally, when I learned this, I found it remarkable and ironic and I wanted to share it with one or other of the rabbis of this synagogue that I attended. And the following week, I approached one of them, the senior rabbi, and I tried to tell her, you know, that story that Rabbi Weiss told last week, it's not actually from a midrash, it's from Arab folklore. But I was cut off rather abruptly before I could even finish that sentence. And... This very busy rabbi then rushed off to something else. I don't know exactly why that happened. I don't know whether or not perhaps this was a fact she instinctively didn't want to hear. But either way, we have to acknowledge this irony that this tale has reached a whole new audience of especially Jewish Americans who have misidentified it. I can't say that there's some one singular truth or lesson that I can pull out of this story and the meta-story about this story. 
But I do think I have to point out the many, many layers of irony that surround this whole affair. On the one level, it's understandable that this story has been mistaken for a Jewish story because in itself it has this keen sense of irony and of human foibles. Right? The fact that each brother wants to share and give to the other but knows that the other will refuse it. The pride and the wasted labor and effort that is well-intentioned but self-defeating. There's so much about this story that sounds as if it could have come from a Yiddish folktale that sounds strangely familiar to a Jewish audience. In fact, it comes from a people, a world and a tradition that most Jewish people and most people in the modern West in general know absolutely nothing about and whom we tend to assume have no history, no traditions, no literature. And that's not all. There are further ironies, so many that it seems almost incredible that, that this whole saga could be true at all. For one thing, the fact that this story specifically involves and is rooted in the sharing of a piece of land and the sharing of the product, the fruit of that land. How ironic is it that such a story made the leap from the Palestinian Arab world to the Jewish world to collectivities of people who have come into contention specifically over the sharing of the Holy Land, the place that this story came from, and that on some level that this story, I believe, is about. And even more specifically than that, the twist at the end of this little tale is that the hillside that these two brothers have had to share is in fact the Temple Mount, a place that has been the site of conflict and often violent contention for centuries. How ironic is it that the sanctity of that particular hill in Judea or Palestine, the sanctity of which this tale seeks to attribute to brotherly love, is in fact possibly the most intensely fought over tract of land in the world. Now, it might be tempting, of course, to draw some nice encapsulated message out of this story, something about brotherly love and coexistence. And I won't stop anyone who wants to do that. But I do think it's a little beyond my purview as a historian. Rather, I will just say that there are many meanings that one can take out of this little tale and the way it has been used and appropriated beyond its earlier context. And a last meaning that I'd like to take out of this, of my own encounter with this story, that I think is important for understanding our current situation in historical context, is simply to re-emphasize once again the fact that it never occurred to the audience that heard this story in this particular synagogue in New York City nor to the rabbi, the learned person who told the story from the Bimah, nor apparently to the many different rabbis and other Jewish leaders who have told this story in many different synagogues, it never occurred to them 
that this was a Palestinian story. And in this way, I think this is very reflective of the whole environment in which I and many people like myself have traveled throughout our lives. A sort of blissful ignorance, or you could say perhaps a willful ignorance, a willful denial of the fact that Palestinians, to use a just broad term, a modern term, but a broad umbrella term for the people who lived in the country, the province of Palestine, before the Zionist movement and before the creation of Israel, actually have a history, have their traditions, their life ways, their beliefs and teachings, which in many ways, in many respects, are quite similar and are closely interconnected with Judaism. And that modern Judaism, as we know it and practice it, would not be the same without that exposure to the Palestinian world. Okay, so I've said the explosive words, Palestine, Israel, Zionism. I've opened up a whole can of worms that I am not prepared to handle today. I have to record this and edit and post by New Year's Eve, so I am not going to get deeply into these subjects. But I have just made a claim about the relationship, the interrelationship of Jewish and Palestinian life, and furthermore about the denial or erasure of that interrelationship. And I'm not going to try to substantiate all of that right now. It would take a book or multiple books. But I will try at least to flesh out a little more what I'm talking about by making a couple more comments specifically about Ottoman Palestine, which is the particular place, the particular society, where, as far as we know, according to our earliest sources, where that story actually came from. So as my regular listeners will know, over most of the past year, I've been working on a long series of lectures about the origins of the First World War. And in it, I've been making the argument that that war actually came about originally because of the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire, the long-standing major power that had controlled the Balkans, the Middle East, and North Africa, and thus controlled all of the crucial nodes and connections linking Europe, Asia, and Africa for about 400 years, and that the power vacuum that resulted from the decline of the Ottoman Empire, and especially from its loss of control of the Balkans, is what led to a power contest and eventually to a massive war. And part of why I started this series was because I was reflecting on the connections and possible parallels between the outbreak of that war, which started initially between Austria-Hungary and Serbia in the Balkans, and the current war that's been happening in Ukraine. Now, naturally, as often happens, I do not move fast enough at the speed of punditry to keep up with events <laughs> as they happen. And another war, if you can call it that, has of course broken out 
in the later months of this year in Israel, which is also a former Ottoman province. It was one of its most long-standing provinces in the entire empire, basically from 1516 to 1917, and only lost control of Palestine in the midst of the First World War. I cannot give any detailed or profound explanation for the violence and conflicts between Israelis and Palestinians. I could certainly give my views and opinions informed by my understanding of history. And I did do that to some degree on Tuesday night when I was a guest on the Katie Halper Show. And I'll link to that in the description here. If you watch the video, you can see some of my comments, then some others Katie and her colleagues put into a patron-only version for patrons of the Katie Halper Show. And I will not go back and rehash or repeat everything I said there on the Katie Halper Show. Instead, I will try to make a few more comments from the historical perspective. And most of what I want to convey right now is simply the fact that one cannot explain or understand that continuing conflict and violence without seeing the confluence of two different historical forces, one of them being the breakdown of the Ottoman regime and the other being the emergence and arrival in Palestine of the Zionist movement. And I'll try to illustrate or illuminate that a little bit by reference to some encounters between the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman Palestine on the one hand and the Zionist movement on the other. So the Zionist movement was a revolutionary emergence that came out of Jewish life in Europe in the 19th century. I will not go into great detail right now about the roots and the origins of the Zionist movement. I will just say that it is a form of Jewish nationalism rooted most fundamentally in the idea that the Jewish people are a nation or an ethno-national group comparable to the Germans, the Italians, the Irish, etc., and that therefore the Jewish people ought to have a nation-state, as those other putative ethno-national groups do. There have been many different strands and stages in the Zionist movement. Zionists don't all think alike. But the first Zionists who successfully gained an audience and really launched an international movement to create a Jewish state were mainly highly assimilated and secular Jewish people who at some point in their lives saw themselves as fully integrated into the different European nations that they belonged to, Austria, France, Russia, but who reached, you could say, a kind of glass ceiling. And when they found that they could never really be fully accepted and embraced as equal within their respective nations, they changed their thinking. They effected a sort of revolution in thinking and concluded that instead they were part of a Jewish nation, a Jewish nation defined most of all by shared ancestry, or as some of them said, blood, not defined in the traditional religious terms as a special covenanted people set apart as holy by their special relationship with God. 
So the first widespread and effective Zionist movement emerged in the 1890s. It was secular, it was modernizing, and it tended to denigrate and reject traditional Jewish life, the life of the ghettos and the shtetl, which they saw as backwards, primitive, and submissive to non-Jewish authority. So these Zionists, led most of all by Theodor Herzl, an Austro-Hungarian Jewish journalist who grew up in Budapest, was educated at Vienna, and who saw himself very much as a modern man, Herzl and his circle wanted to overturn Jewish tradition as a necessary step towards liberating the Jewish people as a nation. Herzl himself didn't especially care where the Jews would go and regather and establish their new state. And he openly entertained offers, for instance, from the British Empire to relocate Jews and give them a homeland in Uganda, in Africa. But this proved too unpopular and controversial, especially among fellow Zionists from Eastern Europe. So ultimately, the movement really focused in on Palestine. That was the highest ambition, that was the ideal goal of the Zionist movement from its earliest days, was to create, or you could say recreate, a Jewish state in Palestine. And of course, in those years, prior to the First World War, Palestine was, as we've said, an Ottoman province. The Ottoman Empire was in clear decline, at least in political and military terms and in terms of territory. They had lost all of their territories in Europe beyond the immediate area of Constantinople. They'd also basically, in, in effect, had lost all of North Africa as well. They still held on to much of the Middle East and the Near East, including Palestine, Syria, Lebanon. And to Theodore Herzl and his supporters, this presented an opportunity. The Ottoman Empire was struggling. It was clinging to life. It was in debt. This, in Herzl's view, should make it possible for his Jewish movement to obtain, in some way, in some form, title to Palestine. His initial idea was that he could raise money from wealthy Jewish families in Europe, use that to pay off the debts of the Ottoman Empire, and in return, the Sublime Port would grant him a charter of some sort to a company that would facilitate the relocation of Jews to Palestine and the creation of a Jewish homeland, perhaps an independent state or perhaps some sort of autonomous protectorate within the bounds of the empire, as had existed in many places previously, like in Egypt under Muhammad Ali. So it was with this basic scheme in mind that Theodor Herzl himself boarded the Orient Express on June 15, 1896, to go to Constantinople. When he got there, he was able to meet with a Polish diplomat who managed to get him admission into the sublime port. And he was able to exchange messages with high-level Ottoman officials. But ultimately, the Sultan himself, Abdelhamid II, refused to give him an imperial audience. Instead, after learning of Herzl's proposal to pay off Ottoman debts in return for a charter to Palestine, 
the emperor wrote back to him, quote, The Turkish Empire belongs not to me, but to the Turkish people. I cannot give away any part of it. Let the Jews save their billions. When my empire is partitioned, they may get Palestine for nothing. Our corpse will be divided. End quote. So there's a lot that's remarkable about this short note from the Sultan to Theodor Herzl from 1896. On one level, one can see it as prophetic. Here was the Sultan openly acknowledging that his own empire was moribund and was bound to be partitioned up among foreign powers. And as it happened, 21 years later, in 1917, during the First World War, the British were able to invade and occupy Palestine after fighting several very taxing battles against Ottoman forces. And after taking possession of the province, the British government at home in London issued the so-called Balfour Declaration, in which they stated that they would support the ultimate aim of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Now, the British didn't exactly stick to this commitment, and the declaration itself, to begin with, was very ambiguous. You know, what does that mean? What is a Jewish homeland? Is that an independent sovereign state? Does it mean Jews will have sovereign control over it? And what do you mean by in Palestine? Does that mean all of Palestine? This was all very unclear and would be contended and fought over by Jews, Palestinians, and Britons for the next 30 years. But nonetheless, this does make Abdul Hamid's sort of fatalistic pronouncement appear strangely prophetic. At the same time, if one looks at his wording, the Sultan says that the Turkish Empire belongs to the Turkish people, and hence he is not at liberty to give away any piece of it. This is a very strange statement for an Ottoman emperor, including for Abdul Hamid. He doesn't invoke religion, and he doesn't even invoke his own authority as Sultan or as Caliph to dispose of Ottoman territory as he wishes. Instead, he seems to allude to some sort of popular sovereignty on the part of the Turkish people. And even at this time, even at this late date, the majority of the subjects of the Ottoman Empire were not Turkish. This sounds more like a sort of Turkish nationalist statement, as if there's some sort of reciprocal bond between this territory and an ethno-linguistic group, in this case the Turks. So really, he sounds in this statement like a Turkish nationalist. We know that Abdul Hamid II rejected Ottomanism. He didn't really believe in this sort of modern, secular, liberal state in which people of all religions and ethnicities would have equal rights. He didn't believe, you could say, in the underlying liberal ideology of the Tanzimat reforms that had started 50 years earlier. He's usually seen instead as a pan-Islamist who wanted to sort of redefine the empire along religious terms. And yet in this message, he comes across like a Turkish nationalist, as if the empire was a Turkish nation-state, and hence all of its parts were organically connected and could not be severed one from the other. That's one of the basic assumptions of modern nationalism. And in this way, despite his fatalism or his defeatism, you can see Abdul Hamid is putting forward a sort of contrary nationalism in opposition to Herzl's nationalism and his vision of 
a Jewish nation state attached to an organically unified territory to which the Jewish people as a nation have a special and exclusive claim. So these were two contending beliefs, but which operated, you could say, in the same language. So perhaps in a way you can see Herzl and the Sultan as in some sense sharing a world picture, a vision of the earth as divided up like a jigsaw puzzle of sovereign nation states. It was just a question of which one would control this particular territory. Now, it's also interesting something else that Herzl and the Sultan had in common, in that neither of them made any reference to the actual population currently living in Palestine, who overwhelmingly were not Turks, and who also were mostly not Jews. There were some Jews in Palestine, as there always have been, but it was left to others to investigate and describe who were the people living in Palestine. And this was a strangely difficult question to answer, both at that time in the last years of the Ottoman Empire and today, because the records and the information about the people of Palestine were not collected and organized in the ways that we would do so today. The Ottoman Empire had begun collecting fairly detailed census and tax and conscription records from their provinces starting around 1850 in the midst of the era of the Tanzimat reforms. But they nonetheless organized and conceptualized their subject populations in still a very different way that doesn't match up with our modern assumptions. They categorized people mainly by religion. So we can say that around the time that the Zionist migration into Palestine began in the 1880s, there were about 600,000 people in the whole region. Most of them were Muslim. About 10% or about 60,000 were Christian. And about 4% or roughly 25,000 people were Jews. And this Jewish community was also in itself diverse. Around half or so were local Palestinian Jews whose families and ancestors had been there simply since time immemorial. And about another half were migrants of various backgrounds who had come from the Jewish world and resettled in the Holy Land. The common language of basically all the people of this region was Arabic, regardless of religion. And as for ethnicity or nationality, that was not generally asked and recorded. And there's a lot of fuzziness and ambiguity. Some people, at least some of the time, referred to themselves as Arabs, but not necessarily everyone or in a consistent way. They also didn't generally call themselves Palestinians. That would be a sort of odd, strange, technical term at that time. Rather, it seems that the most commonly used sort of broad term for the residents of Palestine, regardless of their religious affiliation, was felachin which is an Arabic term basically meaning farmers or plowmen. And it seems this term was adopted and used for many years, especially as a way of distinguishing the farming and village-dwelling people of Palestine, as opposed to, on the other hand, the Bedouin, the nomadic, mostly desert-dwelling shepherding people. 
Now, both Filahin and Bedouin were mostly Arabic-speaking and mostly Muslim, and they had a lot of close interactions and interrelations. But the term Arab was more often applied to Bedouin, and it seems that sometimes even Filahin in the towns and villages of Palestine would use Arabs specifically for Bedouins to distinguish themselves as a different group. Now, the idea of referring to all of the Muslim Arabic-speaking people of Palestine as Arabs, that is mostly a newer, modern development of the 20th century. And it's partly a product of pan-Arabism and Arab nationalism. The idea that all Arabic-speaking people should see themselves as one united group under one identity. That idea, that mentality, really didn't exist in Palestine in the 19th century. And it would come up and flourish later in the 1920s and 30s, partly in response to Zionism, to Jewish nationalism. So when asked about who they were or where they came from, the residents of Palestine would respond basically in ways that were typical of pre-modern people. They would identify their religious affiliation, and they would identify their particular local identity, tribal, family, clan, village. They didn't necessarily think of themselves as belonging to an ethno-national group, whether Palestinian or Arab for that matter. And if pressed, they would say that they were filahin, right? farmers, villagers. Now, who, you might ask, was pressing them and trying to figure out, identify, categorize these people? Well, initially, in these early years, in the 1890s and the early 1900s, up through the end of the First World War, it was largely Zionists who were in the business of scoping out the country How does it work? What's the economy? What is the climate and the landscape? And who are these people that we will have to somehow deal with and either coexist with or expel out of Palestine if we're going to make it into a Jewish homeland? So what did these Zionist ethnographic investigators find? Well, different Zionist writers and scholars published a series of books and pamphlets describing the country of Palestine, and to varying degrees, the people who lived there, between the 1880s and the 1910s. And what did they find, and what did they say? Here are just some of the facts that they found. The place names, such as those of rivers and mountains, were overwhelmingly derived from Hebrew, and many of them referred to characters or incidents in the Hebrew Bible. At least 210 Palestinian villages had recognizably Hebrew names. Likewise, many of the given names were of Hebrew origin and referred to Old Testament patriarchs or prophets. As for the sacred sites, the destinations of pilgrimages, many of them referred to incidents places associated with the heroes of the Hebrew Bible or their tombs and burial places. There were festivals that annually celebrated the Hebrew prophets, including a large annual festival for Moses. 
Overwhelmingly, the Felachim spoke Arabic, as I said, but Arabic is a very multivarious language with different forms and dialects in different countries, and the Palestinian form of Arabic was quite distinctive and had an enormous portion of words from Hebrew and Aramaic. As for their laws and ethics, in addition to Islamic Sharia, the Felachim also had an additional oral law called the Shariat al-Khalil, or Law of Abraham. The cemeteries that farmers and villagers would visit to pay homage to ancestors or relatives were mostly mixed, Muslim and Jewish. So what was one to make of all of these facts that repeatedly pointed towards a close connection between the Palestinian Felachin and the Hebrew and Aramaic languages, the Old Testament, and even Jewish law and tradition. Well, to many of these early Zionist ethnographers and writers, the implication was fairly clear and unavoidable. For example, the early organizer and leader of Jewish migrants to Palestine, Israel Belkind, wrote that in Palestine he had encountered, quote, a good many of our people our own flesh and blood. Another prominent Zionist, the sort of founding figure of the Zionist left, named Ber Barakov, wrote, quote, the local population in Palestine is racially more closely related to the Jews than to any other people, even among the Semitic ones. It is quite probable that the Felachin in Palestine are direct descendants of the Jewish and Canaanite rural population, with a slight admixture of Arab blood. For it is known that the Arabs, being proud conquerors, mingled very little with the populations in the countries they conquered. So these Zionist ethnographers were concerned first and foremost with ancestry and blood, because that was how they defined nationhood rather than by religious affiliation. And they said very clearly in these early years of the movement, they said very clearly and straightforwardly. The Felachin of Palestine, the progenitors of the people we would today call Palestinians, were descended from the ancient Israelites and Canaanites just the same as they were, just the same as Jewish people. Now, there are some things that some people hearing this might immediately think in response. One is, this can't be true because haven't we found Jewish genes that show that Jews are the descendants of the ancient Israelites? Well, the short answer to that is no, there's no such thing. Genes travel freely among any population they can get into. No population is isolated. Every group has intermingled. Every genetic line has crossed over the course of centuries. And indeed, every single person living on Earth today is descended from every single person who was living on Earth 3,000 years ago. So by that measure, everybody in the world is descended from some ancient Israelites. But nonetheless, we can talk about proportions, right? We can say there are certain genes that tend to be associated more with particular geographic or ethnic groups. And if we compare people's genomes, we can find some genes tend to be more common or concentrated in this or that population. And by that measure, you can loosely say that it does seem that most Jews have some degree of genetic commonality. 
and that they probably have some shared ancestry going back to the ancient Near East, right? We can, we can say that sort of roughly speaking. However, the first genetic study that was published in 2000 that purported to describe the degrees of genetic common heritage, genetic distance among Jewish communities found that you can loosely group together different Jews, Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, into a broad sort of genetic pool that have some degree of commonality. But by the very same token, that same degree of commonality is also shared by Palestinians. So insofar as we try to use genetics at all, it seems to bear out what these early Zionists were saying, which is that it is evident that the people of Palestine, even down to modern times, are largely descended from the same population of ancient Hebrews and Israelites that are the ancestors of Jews. And indeed, they share more commonality with Jews and, for that matter, Samaritans than they do with Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula. And even as late as 1929, after this fact about the shared common ancestry of Jews and Palestinians was falling out of political favor, it was becoming more unpopular. Even that late, the Zionist writer Itzhak Ben-Svi stated very clearly, quote, obviously it would be mistaken to say that all the Felachin are descendants of the ancient Jews, but it can be said of most of them or their core, end quote. Now, I'm sure that as I read these things out, some listeners are surely saying, but that can't be true because we all know that with the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans, the Jews were expelled from Judea, and that's why they came to be scattered all around the world. So therefore, the people who were living in Palestine 1,800 years later couldn't possibly be those people or their descendants. Well, the fact is this story about the mass expulsion of the Jews out of Judea, leading to the diaspora around the world, is part of a mythology of Jewish history. And as I've said over and over again in this podcast, to say that something is a myth does not necessarily mean that it is true or that it is false. It can be either or it can be a mixture of both. But it happens that the evidence on this particular point is clear. There was no mass expulsion of all of the Jews out of Judea in the Roman era. That just didn't happen. There already was a large scattering of Jewish communities all around the Roman and Persian worlds long before that. And we have many documents and facts about these sizable and growing Jewish communities in Egypt, North Africa, Italy, Babylon, Persia, long before the destruction of the Second Temple in AD 70. And additionally, we have plenty of evidence showing that the majority of the population of Palestine continued to be Jewish after that point and right on up through the later Roman and Byzantine eras. So this idea that Roman Palestine was massively cleansed of Jews, it is not supported by archaeological or textual evidence, and it doesn't make any sense. 
We know that the Romans on more than one occasion did destroy Jerusalem, the traditional Jewish capital, the center of Jewish resistance to Roman rule. But Jerusalem was a relatively small city and only a small fraction of the Jewish population was there. Outside of that one capital, the Jewish people lived in scattered small towns, villages, and farms. And there was no massive Roman campaign to round them up and expel them all, which would have been enormously expensive, difficult, and which would have simply robbed them of the tax base of this province, which is what they wanted. So these same early Zionist ethnographers who recognized that clearly the Palestinians were in large part descended from the ancient Hebrews and Israelites, the same as many Jews were, they also had to revisit this traditional mythology of Jewish history and explain that it was clearly not true. So to go back to Israel Belkind, that very early leader of Zionist settlement in Palestine, he wrote, quote, The historians are accustomed to say that after the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus, the Jews were scattered all over the world and no longer inhabited their country. But this, too, is a historical error, which must be removed and the true facts discovered, end quote. And then in addressing the fact that there is a far-flung Jewish diaspora around the world beyond Palestine, Belkin wrote, quote, The land was abandoned by the upper strata, the scholars, the Torah men, to whom the religion came before the country. Perhaps, too, so did many of the mobile urban people. But the tillers of the soil remained attached to their land, end quote. And several decades later, in 1918, just before the end of World War I and just after Britain's Balfour Declaration, two major Zionist organizers, Itzhak Ben-Zvi, who I quoted before, and David Ben-Gurion, who many of you have probably heard of, who then went on to become the first prime minister of Israel, they co-wrote a booklet titled Eretz Israel in the Past and in the Present, and in it they wrote that, quote, the Felachin are not descendants of the Arab conquerors who captured Eretz Israel, meaning the land of Israel, and Syria in the 7th century. The Arab victors did not destroy the agricultural population they found in the country. They expelled only the alien Byzantine rulers and did not touch the local population. Nor did the Arabs go in for settlement. Even in their former habitations, the Arabians did not engage in farming. They did not seek new lands on which to settle their peasantry, which hardly existed. Their whole interest in the new countries was political, religious, and material, to rule, to propagate Islam, and to collect taxes. And they go on to say, quote, to argue that after the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews altogether ceased to cultivate the land of Eretz Israel is to demonstrate complete ignorance in the history and the contemporary literature of Israel. The Jewish farmer, like any other farmer, was not easily torn from his soil, which had been watered by his sweat and the sweat of his forebears. Despite the repression and suffering, the rural population remains unchanged. End quote. And you may notice that subtle shift at the end there into present tense. The population remains unchanged. This is what all evidence points towards archaeological, linguistic, ethnographic, and now, to a limited degree, with caution, genetic. Most of the Jewish people in the ancient world 
were not city dwellers in Jerusalem. Most of them were what were called the Am Ha'aretz, the country folk. And there's no indication that those people went anywhere, neither during the Roman era or the Byzantine era, nor as a result of the Arab conquest. Rather, it seems that what happened in Palestine is basically the same as what happened in the other countries that the Muslim Arabs conquered in those centuries, such as Egypt, Persia, Iraq. Most of the population remained in place, and they carried on a great deal of their customs and traditions. And over time, with political incentives, tax incentives, year by year, generation by generation, the people gradually converted to Islam. But not all of the people converted to Islam. Much like in these other countries like Egypt, in Palestine as well, some people were Christian and some never converted at all. Some Palestinian Jews simply remained Jews. And hence, by the time the Ottoman Empire fell in the early 20th century, there was still a Jewish community in Palestine who in many ways followed the same customs as their neighbors and spoke the same dialect of Arabic, but who continued to practice Judaism and simply never converted. So the ancient Jewish presence in Palestine never went away. It just continued to exist under different conditions, and as many of their relatives and neighbors bit by bit converted to Islam, but still carried on some of the customs and traditions that they knew from the pre-Islamic age. And in this way, the people whom we know of from ancient times as the Amha Aretz evolved gradually into the Felachin. Okay, so what's the point? What to take from all of this? Again, there are all kinds of things one could take from this, but it's impossible not to mention the remarkable echo here of two groups of people who actually, when you examine the facts, have a tremendous amount in common and who, by all evidence, are closely related and share all kinds of history with one another, who then come into conflict and who, for political reasons, have come to be portrayed as fundamentally alien to one another. And I retold again that story of the two brothers on the mountainside, in part because it's come to represent to me this kind of looming background condition of modern Jewish life, where we are told actively and passively also by omission or by distortion, we are told to see Palestinians as somehow fundamentally alien to us, as an opposing camp with whom at best we have to make peace, rather than as being a set of people who are just as connected to us as we are to other Jews in other places in the world. So now there are a few other topics from this year that I'd like to refer to and discuss a little bit, although I fear that they will fall far short in terms of dramatic impact. It may be a case, you could say, of other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the theater? In the same way that these events in Israel and Palestine have so overshadowed everything else over these past few months. But nonetheless, I'd like to go back and point out a few things from earlier in the year 
which actually began, if we think all the way back to January, began with this drama over the U.S. House of Representatives and the struggle to elect a speaker, which took a total of four days and 15 ballots before Kevin McCarthy eventually was elected to this thankless office, which he no longer holds 12 months later anyway. So this process of electing a speaker in January was indeed unusually long. The normal process that we tend to see at the beginning of most congressional sessions is just a single pro forma vote in which it is a foregone conclusion that the chosen candidate of the majority party will be elected. Now, when this didn't happen this past January, and when the process dragged on for several days without resolution, there was a lot of criticism and consternation and a good deal of mockery, especially of the Republican majority. They were said to be in disarray. The situation was described as infighting. You hear that a lot in kind of cheap political punditry. This is Republican infighting. People said that McCarthy or the Republican leaders couldn't control their caucus and so forth. Now, all of these things may be perfectly valid comments as far as political punditry goes, But from a historical perspective, one also has to question, why is this so bad? What's wrong with open conflict and contention for power? Isn't that sort of what voting in elections are? And it is true that this struggle did cause a four-day delay in beginning the business of the House. But this is really pretty small compared to the amount of time that the House regularly spends simply out of session. And on the other side of the coin, why is the routine process better, where it's just an automatic foregone conclusion with no actual contestation, and where basically the next speaker has already been chosen behind the scenes within the party caucus? Is it so bad, I would ask, for the public to be able to see this contention out in the open, and for the balance of power among different groups and competing interests to be openly hashed out in public view? So it happens that in my paper for the Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities, which just came out but which I wrote back in 2021, I discussed this subject, the frequent open fighting, sometimes even breaking down into physical fights, that have often happened on the floor of the House of Representatives. This is not unheard of and was even fairly frequent in the early years of the Republic between about the 1790s and the 1850s. Now, I'm not saying that acrimonious fighting or brawling is good, but as long as people, you know, don't throw fists, then is it so bad to see the thrashing out of factional differences through balloting, through repeated ballots. Isn't that better than actual literal thrashing, which, again, has also happened? And this days-long wrangling that took place in January is certainly unusual, but it's not unprecedented. There have been 14 speaker elections that had to go through multiple ballots before the choice was settled. And it happens that these occur especially often in times of realignment with old party systems breaking down and being replaced or somehow drastically reshuffled as different interests and regional groups 
realign and form new coalitions. It happened several times in the 1850s as the new Republican Party came into power for the first time. And the Republican Party at that point was a complex, cobbled together coalition united really only by varying shades of opposition to slavery. The last time that it happened, it has been Nonetheless, though, it has been a century since the last time that it happened, exactly 100 years ago in 1923. So let's look for a moment at what happened there. In 1923, it took three days and nine ballots to finally elect Frederick Gillette of Massachusetts as Speaker. And as in 2023, the ultimate winner, Gillette, was expected from the beginning to simply be the foregone conclusion. But it didn't happen and was not officially ratified until some complex wrangling and horse trading had gone on. So Gillette was an old guard Republican stalwart from the Northeast, the main base of the Republican Party. He supported protectionism and familiar Republican policies that were supportive of business and industrial interests. He was generally understood to be inoffensive, fairly non-controversial, and with fairly broad support among Republicans. But nonetheless, on the first ballot, Gillette was opposed by the Democrats and also by 22 Republicans. And for that reason, he fell 14 votes short of the 211 that he needed in order to win a majority. These 22 Republican renegades voted for several different candidates, other Republicans in the House. But most of them, 17 of them, supported Henry A. Cooper of Wisconsin, who was a close ally of the famous reformist Senator Robert La Follette, who was seen as sort of the dean of the progressive faction in Congress, a faction that was based mostly in the Midwest and that came into conflict with the New York and New England-based conservative Republican faction. So these 22 Republicans who did not vote for Gillette were all from the Midwest, including Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Minnesota, and North Dakota, except for one exception, and that was the Republican Congressman Fiorello LaGuardia from New York, who was also a progressive reformist Republican and later went on to become mayor of New York City and supported the implementation of the New Deal in New York City. Now, what was this fight about? Why did these progressives in this way break away and refuse to support the party choice Gillette. Well, the substance of the divide was regional and ideological. These 22 Midwesterners were basically the remnant of the old progressive faction in the House, and they had been trying for years to advance progressive legislation, especially which challenged business and industrial interests. And these legislative efforts had been held up and largely squashed by House rules and procedures. So previously, in 1903 to 1912, the House was led by the Speaker Joseph Cannon, who was the Progressive's arch enemy. He, by the time he retired, he was the longest serving congressman ever, and he dramatically consolidated power in the hands of the Speakership, controlling committee assignments, rules, and agendas from within the Speaker's office, mostly in secrecy, and with no clear way of challenging these decisions. And allegedly, according to lore, at one point a journalist reporting on Congress asked for a copy of the House rulebook, and in return he received an envelope with a picture of Joseph Cannon inside. 
Now, in 1912, he was ousted from power due to an alliance of progressive Republicans and Democrats. But nonetheless, the speakership continued to be very powerful, and it allowed for more conservative Northeastern Republicans to still control the agenda and to bottle up legislation that they did not favor. So this standoff ensued in 1923, which ended up being resolved by rules changes. Allies of Gillette approached this progressive faction and offered to give greater independence to committee chairs and to allow non-chairs, so ordinary rank-and-file members of committees, to advance legislation to the floor by petition. And this would thus enable Democrats and progressives together to move legislation forward and bypass the leadership altogether. So finally, on the ninth ballot, the 22, most of the 22 progressives fell in line and elected Gillette. Now, this sort of bargain didn't last for very long, just for one term of Congress, because the progressives' leverage depended upon the very narrow split in the House and the slim majority that the Republicans held. And for that reason, Gillette had needed all Republican votes in order to be elected Speaker. But just the next election in 1924, the Republicans won an enormous majority, and the leadership no longer had to worry about this renegade progressive faction. So in 1925, the Republicans elected the conservative Nicholas Longworth of Ohio to replace Gillette, and they proceeded to then reverse these various reforms and to restore the powers of the speakership. What is more, they stripped all of the renegade progressive congressmen of their seniority and chairmanships on the various committees and went so far as expelling 13 of them from the Republican caucus entirely. So does this compare in any meaningful way to this fight that we saw in 2023? Well, the 1923 fight hinged on a shrinking progressive faction which distrusted the old guard or you could say establishment of the Republican Party and which was clearly declining and on its way out. Soon after, in the 1930s, this progressive faction would largely leave the party altogether and move over into the New Deal coalition. So this struggle in 1923 can be seen as sort of the last gasp of the old party system and old party alignment that was left over from the Civil War and Reconstruction. Now, the 2023 fight hinged on a different faction, which has been called variously the Tea Party or MAGA wing of the Republican Party, and which has much less clear policy goals or agendas, but which does similarly distrust the old party establishment, which they associated with McCarthy. If there is any main divisive policy issue involved in this fight, it was foreign policy, especially U.S. monetary support for the war in Ukraine. And it was similarly resolved by rules changes. And these changes were nothing very sophisticated or complex, but they did include a rule allowing any member of the House to call for a vote to remove the Speaker at any time. And this power then actually was used just nine months later, resulting in the removal of Kevin McCarthy and an empty speaker's chair for a period of time. And the rationale for this recall was, in fact, an appropriations measure to Ukraine. So what we don't know yet and still have to see is, will this faction somehow 
disappear or decline or leave the Republican Party altogether? Is it on its way out or is it rising? Does it reflect a coming realignment that can lead or may inevitably lead to the breaking of old alliances and coalitions and then the creation of new ones? It may pave the way for a broader reshuffling of the party coalitions and the emergence of a new majority because the House can only be governed by majority. And even regardless of the House rules or the process of electing a speaker, new coalitions are bound to emerge and fill the vacuum just based on the basic principle that all conflict tends to resolve itself into two sides. This is just a basic fact of life and of politics. And it applies here in congressional power struggles and also abroad in the international arena. So along with this possible emerging realignment in American domestic politics, there also is arguably a realignment at work abroad. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and the 2000s, there was a lot of talk about a unipolar world. And you still hear commentary about the last several decades that use this kind of terminology. But now that it seems that U.S. power is slipping, for instance, when the U.S. and their European allies were unable to impose effective sanctions on Russia last year, this unipolar talk has been replaced now by talk of a multipolar world. So we seem to, in, in many commentators' view, we have skipped right from unipolar to multipolar. But this whole concept and this whole language of international power is at best very fuzzy and ambiguous. What does all of this mean? What, what does unipolar mean? What is a pole? So to begin, begin with this idea of a unipolar world, I've always been very skeptical and hesitant to talk about that. You know, certainly one can say the U.S. has for some time been by far the most powerful country in the world. But even in that situation, aren't different countries also still always making their own decisions and exerting power in whatever ways they can, even if they are not superpowers or major powers? And it strikes me as a little arrogant to reduce the world to just one pole, you know, the, imagining everything revolving around us here in the United States. Now, on the other hand, if one tries to talk about a multipolar world, uh, what does that mean? And isn't that just politics? Like, what, why, wh how can there be multiple poles? If we stop and think about the metaphor, what is a pole in the first place? Well, my understanding is that the term in this sense is borrowed from geography and astronomy. When we talk about the Earth or planet revolving around its axis, and the axis has two poles. And the Earth, of course, has two poles, north and south. And in that sense, there can only ever be two poles. It doesn't make sense to have multiple... How can, how can a planet have multiple poles? It doesn't compute, right? There have to be two. And that's why I think the metaphor can apply to politics, because if you imagine multiple moving parts in a system, they will tend to resolve into some sort of overall pattern that involves two poles, each of which is defined against and in contradistinction to the other. There can't be a North Pole without a South Pole. 
So the metaphor in the first place assumes this basic underlying rule that I already mentioned, that conflict tends to resolve itself into two sides. And politically speaking, each of these two sides may not be a perfectly unified block. There may be multiple actors making independent decisions, having to negotiate and contend with one another, only loosely aligned into a camp. But nonetheless, this camp will tend to revolve, in quotation marks, around some central node, a, a unifying ideology or agenda, or a most powerful leading state. So of course, if we think of this in reference to the Cold War, there were obviously two poles, mainly centering on the US and the Soviet Union. And at the same time, there was an effort to unite and create a movement of so-called non-aligned states, especially post-colonial states, that tried to remain outside of the US-Soviet power struggle. And this movement drew members from what was called at that time the Third World, in distinction to the First World, which meant the democratic capitalist bloc centering on the United States, and the second world, which is the communist sphere centering on the Soviet Union. So they were trying, you could say, to push this metaphor forward. They were trying to create a third pole and to defy the bipolar logic of world politics. But this movement didn't work for various reasons, including because the United States and the Soviets didn't allow it to happen. The two major powers pressed nations in the so-called third world to take sides, one or the other. And if they didn't do so, then both powers would see them as an enemy and would destabilize their governments with sabotage, assassinations, and coups. So one could ask, was this third way ever really viable? That's hard to say, but certainly at the very least we have to say it goes against the grain, this persistent tendency in history and politics. Now, in this light, the supposed period of unipolarity with seemingly unlimited U.S. hegemony in the 90s and the early 21st century may have been simply a mirage, or it may have been only a temporary interregnum until a new alignment formed. And if this is true that the world was at one point unipolar, then the question one has to ask is, well then, why did NATO expand in Europe? So NATO was created as a military alliance to defend Central and Western Europe, to keep it in the American sphere, and to ward off any possible Soviet or communist expansion through Europe. Well, after the Soviet Union fell, why was NATO still necessary? Why did it not simply dissolve or at least massively scale back its operations? Now, the customary answer to that question that we tend to hear, especially in recent times since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that it had to expand because Eastern European nations like Poland and Hungary needed protection against the threat of Russia. And that's why they wanted to join. But if that is true, then we have to ask, was it ever actually true that the world was unipolar? Wasn't that a massive overstatement? And you could even ask, did the Cold War then ever really end? Or was the fall of the Soviet Union just a further event, a further development in a continuing bipolar Cold War? Now, of course, at the same time, people are also, other commentators are sort of leaping from speaking of a unipolar world to a multipolar world. 
as various states, including Russia and China, act more openly against U.S. wishes and preferences, and as these states start on their part to reach out and court allies or clients in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, basically the areas that were once called the third world. But nonetheless, as we've seen, there's a process happening here at the same time where many of these states that are showing more skepticism towards the U.S. agenda are starting to align together with one another in a loose association, most concretely in the organization called BRICS, which is simply an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So BRICS began initially as BRIC, and it started in the 2000s. And ironically, the name came originally from a pamphlet published in 2001 by Goldman Sachs, which was titled Building Better Global Economic Bricks. And it was basically an investment guide boosting opportunities for profit-making in Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And so it's ironic that this document that coined this phrase and grouped together these countries for the first time It was aimed mainly at American investors, and it treated these other countries basically as open fields for investment and profit-making, almost like unofficial or economic colonies. And yet, these countries then took the cue to begin to cooperate and pool capital with one another, ideally in a way that was independent of the U.S. and Europe. And diplomats representing these four countries began holding side meetings at the UN offices in 2006, and then organized a summit held at Yekaterinburg, Russia in 2009. And the following year in 2010, the organization first began to expand, bringing in South Africa, hence it's now BRICS with an S at the end. And together, these five countries now represent about 42% of the world's population and 33% of the global GDP. And BRICS seeks to raise and steer capital towards building infrastructure within and among these countries. And at first, it sought to reform, to campaign to reform the rules of the IMF in order to obtain better terms for borrower nations. But when this effort failed, largely because the more powerful countries like the U.S. and Britain blocked this move, when this effort failed, they began making plans to form their own investment bank with capital contributed in different proportions by the different member countries. And the idea was also floated of forming a new reserve currency that these countries would use instead of the U.S. dollar. Neither of these things has happened yet, but some preliminary preparations have been made, and many more countries now want to join. So this year, in 2023, a summit was held in August, which formally decided to extend invitations to join the organization to Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Argentina. All of these countries are now scheduled to join formally on New Year's Day, January 1st, with the exception of Argentina, which pulled out after the country elected an extreme libertarian president, Javier Millet, who wants to basically move in the opposite extreme direction, re-dollarizing the economy of the country by pegging its currency to the U.S. dollar. Now, aside from those, 14 more countries have also now applied to join, including among them Bolivia, Thailand, and Vietnam. 
So there's not a whole lot uniting this various, these various countries. A large number of them are oil-producing countries in the Middle East, but not all of them. And there's not much tying them together other than a general desire to develop economically without having to accept the terms of U.S. and European-dominated organs like the IMF. So some questions arise here. Will these various countries resolve into some sort of more coherent camp? Will they develop a more strategically or ideologically articulated agenda? And there's a great irony you might see here that BRICS, in a way, can seem almost like a realization of the Third World Movement and its ideas from the 1960s. Yet now Russia, instead of being one of the two poles of power against which the non-aligned movement organizes itself, instead Russia now is merely a participant country, basically a somewhat junior partner to China. And lastly, in the long term, one can ask, will this sort of new forming camp try to face off more directly against the American and European bloc? Now, as this possible general realignment has been happening, at the same time, a conflict came to a head in the Caucasus region, in basically a country and an area that we tend not to pay much attention to. But over the past three years, since 2020, the government of Azerbaijan has asserted more direct control over the region called Nagorno-Karabakh which is a very ambiguous and sometimes disputed area, an autonomous enclave within Azerbaijan. And the population of this enclave for a long time has been majority Armenian. And it has been understood, according to a series of agreements and quasi-official deals and resolutions, it's been understood as being technically under Armenian sovereignty, so an, an exclave of Armenia, although it operates, in effect, as an autonomous region within Azerbaijan. A war was actually fought in the early 1990s between Armenia and Azerbaijan over control of this area, and it ended with a ceasefire brokered by Russia in which Azerbaijan recognized the autonomy of Nagorno-Karabakh. However, in 2020, the Azerbaijan government violated this ceasefire and began using intermittent shelling and violent harassment by militias to basically pressure this autonomous region to hand over sovereignty and control to Azerbaijan. And this escalated until this past September 19th, when the Azerbaijan military invaded. The local government was quickly overwhelmed and surrendered. And in the following weeks, the majority of the residents of Nagorno-Karabakh, over 100,000 people, fled in a mass emigration. And according to the U.S. official Samantha Power, human rights officials had interviewed thousands of people who had fled, quote, violence, deprivation, and the fear of living under the government of Azerbaijan. Yet, as all of this has gone on, despite the enormous size of this emigration, this arguably forced emigration, or you could say ethnic cleansing, of Armenian people out of this region, it has hardly been spoken of at all in Western media. It has certainly not become a cause celebre like Ukraine, or for that matter, for some audiences, Palestine. And the reason for this inattention may relate to the political 
alignment of the parties involved. Armenia has traditionally been an ally of Russia, and as I mentioned, Nagorno-Karabakh's autonomy was long guaranteed by Russia. On the other hand, Azerbaijan is a close ally and client state, really, of Turkey. And Turkey, in turn, is a member of NATO, and hence politically and militarily aligned with Europe and the U.S. Hence, if we were to try to fit this very local conflict into a larger global context and into a bipolar world map, this would put Azerbaijan onto the U.S.-NATO side and the Armenians onto the Russian or anti-NATO side. And so it's arguably very uncomfortable for the Western press or public or governments to fully acknowledge the scale of this disaster and the human rights violations involved. And it also doesn't fit, you could say further, it doesn't fit the image of rising and unstoppable Russian power threatening all of Europe, which has been advanced as the justification for Western support for Ukraine. And rather, it seems to reflect a possible strategic retreat by Russia and a disengagement from commitments in that region. So what can we make of all this? Should we see this struggle over Nagorno-Karabakh as a kind of proxy war, although not to minimize the enormity, again, of that mass exodus? Is it a proxy war like the ones that were seen in the Cold War in places like Angola and Nicaragua? Should we see it as a last gasp of the past, a sort of distant echo of Russian and Soviet power from the Cold War era? Or, on the other hand, will this kind of conflict repeat or even become more common with this global realignment that is arguably happening? Well, so far, to go back to BRICS, BRICS has made no mention or gesture towards any sort of military cooperation. It doesn't seem to augur any challenge to the existing arrangement and distribution of sheer military power in the world, certainly not in the near future. But that might arguably be an inevitable next step, rather as NATO and the EU have expanded together in tandem from the 50s right on up to 2023, with this recent admission into NATO of Sweden and Finland. And if so, does this mean that at some point in future we can imagine a kind of non-ideological Cold War between these two camps? This is all, of course, very far outside my area of expertise. These, I thought, were just some observations and speculations worth putting forward. But to go back to slightly more familiar ground, the trend of strikes and labor militancy, which I've already talked about, many times before over the last few years, has continued and continued to evolve in 2023. Arguably, there was another kind of wave in the later months of this year. And it included, of course, very prominent visible strikes in the film industry. Firstly, with the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, which went on strike from May through September, making it one of the longest strikes ever in Hollywood history. And they were joined in the later weeks of that strike, then by SAG-AFTRA, 
the Actors Union, comprising the Screen Actors Guild for Film Actors and AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists for TV Actors. And that strike went from July to November, almost as long. And in the commentary about these strikes, there was a lot of discussion about the danger of AI possibly taking over the roles of writers and actors. Now, that was a concern, and it was a factor in the decisions to strike and in the negotiations, but it can be easily exaggerated or overstated. It was not the foremost issue for the writers or the actors. Mostly, this was classic disputes about pay and about decent working conditions, such as job security, work spaces. Both of these strikes were mostly successful, but arguably the writers strike more so than the actors. And the final deal that ended the writers' strike was approved in a vote by 99% of the membership of the union, whereas the deal for the actors was approved by 78%. And you can take that as sort of a rough proxy for how much of the demands of each union were met. But also, in addition to the particular grievances and the particular material stakes of these conflicts, this pair of strikes was significant for its timing and its symbolism. So as I said, these strikes came amidst a broad trend of rising labor militancy across the board, and also increased public sympathy for labor unions. And so it's very significant that these strikes happened at this time in Hollywood, which has always been a very ideologically important industry. It is, you could say, the most visible industry in the country, in even in a literal way. These are people whose work and whose faces and bodies we see all the time. And hence, Hollywood is naturally a battleground for ideas of American history and society and shared American beliefs. And so fights over labor in the movie-making industry always take on ideological dimensions. And it happens that SAG and the WGA were both formed in the early 30s as early arenas in the wave of union formation in the 30s. And when it comes to SAG, interestingly, it's fun to know some of the early major leaders in bringing that union together included Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, who played Frankenstein and Dracula, and glamorous stars like Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart, and also critically the brothers Ralph Morgan and Frank Morgan, the second of whom, Frank Morgan, is famous mainly for playing the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, and he hosted some of the critical early meetings that both formed and then massively grew SAG in the early 30s. And their first leader was Eddie Cantor, who was at that time, although we don't think of him much today, he was a tremendous star who had crossed over from Yiddish theater into musical films and who happened to be a personal friend of Franklin Roosevelt from his life in New York. And Roosevelt, of course, was the first president to openly encourage workers to form unions. And so Eddie Cantor acting as sort of an an ally of FDR and spearheading this new union was, it, it had a propaganda effect, right, of sending the message to the country that this was now part of American life. And crucially, it was Eddie Cantor who insisted at the first large meeting at Frank Morgan's house in 1933 that this union should not be an exclusive trade union 
as had existed many times in American history. In other words, it should not be like earlier clubs or academies of actors, like the Maskers Club, that only invited major stars, right, who were seen as more valuable and who had higher pay. He insisted that it must include and represent all performers without discrimination, and it should negotiate for better treatment and pay on behalf of all actors. So this, too, had a kind of ideological message to it. And the big questions that SAG dealt with, of course, were pay and working conditions, such as breaks and time off. The large Hollywood studios had tremendous power and could demand almost endless round-the-clock work with little pay, bad food, no time off. And this, this often really ruined the health and morale of many actors to the point that they had to leave the industry. And also SAG fought over the terms of contracts, which gave this enormous power to the studios, including the ability to exclusively control these actors and bar them from working on any films or projects with any other studios. So it's a lot like you might think of the struggles over athletes' contracts, right? When can an athlete be a free agent and choose where to work? Or are they controlled by the boss for many years or their whole career? So these were the sticking points of these early struggles between studios and actors and then writers as well. During the war in the 40s, these unions took part in a sort of united propagandistic war effort, producing material, promoting the war effort, and also entertaining troops abroad. But after the war was over, Hollywood again became a major ideological battleground. And it was widely known that many actors and writers were left-wing in their political views, and some of them were more private about it than others. But many of these actors and writers who had actually taken part in this effort to raise morale and promote the war effort had taken a sort of leftist view of the war, which was current in many circles. They saw the alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union as representing a kind of popular front or a free world united in opposition to fascism. So they didn't just see the Soviet alliance as a sort of uncomfortable marriage of convenience. And after the war was over, this sort of mentality was cast as dangerous and as a sign of communist subversion. Now, as this sort of uh, red fear was growing in 1946 and 47, Hollywood felt that they had to respond and put forward some sort of positive face, a, a patriotic face. And in March 1947, SAG elected Ronald Reagan as the president of the union, who was, you know, a famous actor, not you know, not Laurence Olivier, but he was popular. He was seen as wholesome and mainstream and non-threatening and also as politically progressive and even sympathetic to many socialist or leftist views. He was not at this time a Republican at all. But Reagan, after taking office as president of SAG, he started secretly feeding information to the House Un-American Activities Committee in Congress telling them about actors and writers who were perceived to have communist leanings or sympathies. And in October 47, this congressional committee, HUAC, subpoenaed 10 actors and writers to testify in Congress about communism in Hollywood. And all of these 10 refused. So in November, the so-called Hollywood 10 were found guilty of contempt of Congress. 
And in response, a group of producers met at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and issued a joint statement denouncing the Hollywood Ten and pledging never to hire them again. And this was the beginning of what came to be called the Blacklist. The Union, under the leadership of Reagan, did not rally to their defense. They did not treat this as a labor issue. And so the list of blacklisted artists of various disciplines grew into the hundreds over the course of the late 40s and the 50s. And these blacklisted professionals were barred from the industry. And the system lasted through the 50s and only began to break down in 1960 when the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who had been one of these Hollywood Ten, was publicly credited as the writer of the screenplays for the movies Exodus and Spartacus. So for many decades, this Blacklist episode sort of loomed over the history of Hollywood, and many people fostered a sense of resentment over this invasion of the film industry and the failure of important institutions to defend against this political attack. Now, by 2023, all of that is very long in the past, and I don't think any of it factored very directly. Maybe someone can correct me, but it didn't factor into the dynamics of this these current strikes. But nonetheless, these 2023 strikes were also very politically and ideologically charged. In more recent years, a lot of rhetoric has been directed against Hollywood liberals, basically eliding the distinction between studios and the professionals that they employ. And very often, much as in the 40s, there can be a tremendous split. Hollywood is extremely stratified, and there can be very different views and agendas among different people in different groups. And considering how mixed Americans' feelings are about Hollywood as an industry or milieu, it was very uncertain how the public would perceive this strike. It soon got a great deal of broad public sympathy. People sympathized with the demands for job security, against casualization and unreliable jobs, and against the threat of AI, which many workers in many different industries, especially manual workers, are also afraid might be used to replace them. So these strikes could be seen as a test for newly energized labor movements, which in recent times are more willing or even eager to go on strike. It's also very significant that these strikes involved more than one union acting to some degree, although this is not te- it's not technically legal to mount a sympathy strike for one union to go on strike just to support the other. But clearly, they went on strike at the same time, partly out of a sense of solidarity. And in this way, it became almost like a sectoral strike, wherein all unions across an industry all go on strike together. And this was the first time that these particular unions, the WGA and SAG, both went on strike at the same time since 1960. That was the last time that that happened, which also happens to be the year that the blacklist collapsed. I don't know whether those two things are connected. I'd have to do more research to know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they are related. Now, following on the heels of these strikes in the autumn, the UAW, the United Auto Workers, also began a strategic and targeted strike. Now, the UAW has long been among the most militant unions in the United States. And like SAG and WGA, it also was formed in the 30s, although it took 
longer and it was a more difficult and at points bloody struggle to get the UAW formed and recognized. It had to take on very powerful corporations, most of all the so-called Big Three auto manufacturers of Chrysler, Ford, and GM. And the process started with a series of sit-down strikes in 1936 and 37, in which workers camped out in the factories and refused to leave and basically had to hunker down there for weeks in cold and dark, barely habitable buildings until the employers would recognize the existence of the union and agree to bargain with them. And they were able to get union recognition first at GM and then a few months later at Chrysler. And then over the course of 1937, they began to attempt to organize the workers at Ford. And in this case, they were met with violence. Ford had a so-called service department, which was actually an armed private militia of mostly ex-convicts on parole from prison who were recruited into this force. And Ford directed them to attack Union leafleters on a footbridge outside the River Rouge plant in Detroit, resulting in the so-called Battle of the Overpass. Now, when people saw the violence of this attack on the overpass at River Rouge, public opinion began to turn against Ford and in favor of the Union. But nonetheless, Ford continued to fight and hold out against Union recognition until he finally gave in in 1941. And it's partly because of this struggle, in addition to his anti-Semitism and other reasons, it's partly because of this that Ford really fell from grace, from being an American hero to a villain. So once the UAW had organized the big three, they were clearly now a major force and a major player in American industry, and they joined the CIO, or Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was a relatively newer umbrella group for unions, which was understood to be more militant than the AFL, or American Federation of Labor, and unlike the AFL, focused on expanding its base, organizing more industries, including those with less skilled workers, whereas AFL was more in the trade union tradition of just organizing craft unions among so-called skilled workers. One of the UAW organizers who had actually led that leafleting campaign in Detroit and who was very brutally beaten in the Battle of the Overpass was named Walter Ruther. And he would ultimately emerge as the major leader, and he would be elected as president of the UAW in 1946. He was born in Wheeling, West Virginia. He was German-American, and his father drove a horse-drawn beer truck in West Virginia. And when he came into leadership, Ruther positioned himself as politically radical, but still anti-communist. And he led a campaign, a sort of rolling campaign of strikes in the late 40s, which ultimately ended with the so-called Treaty of Detroit in 1950. And that's a term for a series of contracts with the Big Three, which established certain rules and precedents for auto workers, such as a 40-hour work week, health insurance, and pensions. Later in the mid-50s, when the CIO merged with the AFL, Ruther participated in the purging out of the CIO ranks alleged communists. 
But nonetheless, the AFL-CIO soon started to go too far and created a kind of unofficial gag rule saying that union leaders should not engage in controversial political debates and especially should not take stands on foreign policy. And Ruther saw this as going against his principles, so he pulled the UAW out of the AFL-CIO and joined together with the Teamsters and a few other smaller unions to form the ALA, or Alliance for Labor Action a group that was more openly militant and politically outspoken. So in this era, Ruther and his allies at UAW openly supported the civil rights movement and held UAW marches in support of civil rights in Detroit. And it happens that Martin Luther King actually wrote his famous I Have a Dream speech in the UAW offices in Detroit when preparing for one of these marches just a few months before he then gave the speech at the March on Washington. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, Ruther had two assassination attempts against him. In one of them, his right arm was partly paralyzed when he was shot through his kitchen window, and the assailants were never caught. And reportedly, according to the U.S. Attorney General at that time, he requested for the FBI to investigate these assassination attempts against Ruther, and J. Edgar Hoover simply refused and told the Attorney General, we're not going to send in the FBI any time that a N-word woman cries rape. So, you know, <laughs> how does that even relate? Apparently that was... Hoover's kind of paradigmatic example of an unimportant crime, right? A rape of a black woman. And he was throwing this assassination attempt against Ruther into that grab bag of things the FBI didn't care about. Nonetheless, he continued on as leader of UAW. He was highly involved in national politics. He was closely aligned with LBJ. And for that reason, he did not criticize the Vietnam War through most of the 60s until after Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not be running for re-election. And from that point onward, he did become an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War and of Nixon, and he issued demands on behalf of the UAW that the U.S. withdraw from the war and cut the Pentagon budget. So naturally, he was added onto Nixon's enemies list. And he died in 1970 when his chartered plane crashed in Michigan. And the NTSB found this crash to be the result of a faulty altimeter, which it seems was missing critical parts. However, the FBI again never investigated and there is no explanation of why the altimeter was faulty in the first place. Now after this point, from the 70s through the 80s and 90s, and especially the 2000s, the UAW, like many unions, went into a period of relative quiescence, especially as offshoring increased, and many potential strikes were averted when management threatened that they would simply shut plants down and move operations overseas. And according to many commentators in the labor movement, union leadership was seen to become too cozy with the employers. And over the past five years or so, there has been a significant reaction to this, with unions seeing a new growth in membership, and with this influx of new members, a new militancy, a greater willingness to strike and to be politically outspoken. And many long-standing machines and family dynasties that have run some of these important unions, including UAW and the Teamsters, have recently been voted out, replaced with new reformist slates and factions. 
So this happened firstly with the Teamsters in 2021. And then in this year, March 2023, Sean Fain was elected as the new president of the UAW. And it was a very close election. And he ran on the ticket of the reformist group, uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy. Sean Fain is originally an electrician from Indiana. He promised to respond to this greater sense of urgency and militancy. In some ways, one could see him as a kind of return to the style of Walter Ruther. Immediately upon taking office, he made plans for strikes. And he also broke the unofficial gag rule and has been more politically outspoken And most significantly, the union under his leadership has called for a ceasefire in Gaza and actually held a public rally together with Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian-American congresswoman, who is, of course, very outspoken about Israel and Palestine and also represents Detroit and hence is a natural close ally of the auto workers union. But there also is a crucial difference when one looks at the substance of strategy. So Walter Ruther had a distinctive approach to advancing the auto workers' interests, especially when it came to strikes. He would use selective pressure, where the union would make often very ambitious demands on one specific company. And if they were not met, they would threaten to strike. And if they went on strike at one company, such as Chrysler, then their production would be shut down. And after not very long, business would then redirect to Chrysler's competitors. So this was a way of targeting and maximizing pressure until this one particular employer gave in to their demands. Once that happened, then the new contract with that company would be used as the template for other employers until it became the new industry standard. So it was, you could say, a kind of divide and conquer strategy. Now, Sean Fain, it seems, has taken the opposite approach, where he instead called for a complex rolling strike that targeted plants of multiple different companies at once, basically saying all of these employers are all going to suffer to some degree until one of them chooses to break the solidarity of the employers, make a deal with the union, and then reap the benefits against their competitors. So it's a sort of opposite approach. And this seems so far to have worked. After only six weeks, the strike ended when UAW reached a tentative deal with all three of the big three manufacturers. Now, why the change? I can't say that I know. Again, I would have to do a lot more investigation to figure this out. But it does seem very intriguingly similar to the approach taken by the film industry workers. In other words, in both cases, the labor seemed to have taken the approach of confronting the entire industry head on, treating it in effect as one big industry-wide contest between workers and employers. And in this way, it is similar to the sectoral bargaining that routinely goes on in Europe, especially in Northern Europe, where wages across an entire industry are set by a single agreed-upon contract between the unions and the employers. Is there a reason for this trend, if it is a trend? Maybe this reflects an increasing politicization, a perception of what could be small fights over wages and working conditions in specific workplaces as part of a broader social or class struggle even. Again, we shall have to wait and see. Now finally, I intended to make some more comments also about UFOs. 
a subject that I grappled with in a long discussion a couple of months ago. And that situation too is still developing. Reportedly, more witnesses have been coming forward and privately providing testimony and evidence to members of Congress. Also, David Grush, who is now notorious and ever the tease, hints at more major information that's going to be coming out to the public in the next year. Who knows if that's true or whether that will materialize. But regardless, either way, I said in my lecture that David Grush's testimony this year was not the first piece of evidence that has emerged suggesting a highly secretive, above-top-secret joint program of government and private industry that supposedly gathers and studies crashed UFO material. Now, in relation to that, I was thinking of talking about the so-called Wilson document, an alleged memorandum of a meeting that purportedly took place in 2002, in which the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency also attested to the existence of such a program. But since I have already gone on this long, and I really have to wrap this up in post, I will leave you off unsatisfied, like David Grush. And if people are interested, I may pick that theme and that topic up again later, after we see whether these hints and intimations that have been coming out in dribs and drabs this year materialize into anything concrete. I also intend, as I mentioned at the end of my last lecture, to start a video series analyzing my new favorite movie, which came out in August this year, called Red, White, and Royal Blue, which, as I hope to show, encapsulates an incredible amount about politics and aesthetics today, both good and bad, and which I hope to examine as, in a sense, an artifact of the present, rather like I've discussed archaeological artifacts and how they reveal the time in the world that they came from. I hope everyone enjoys a happy new year, and I'll see you, or you will see and hear me, in 2024. Thank you.